It's September 25th, 2007, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you, as always, from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. And tonight, we're going live from Southern Hall Lobby, and we have several hundred people here joining us after a very exciting performance of the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven. We have with us soprano soloist Misha Brugge-Gossman, and we have maestro Pinka Sukeman. Please welcome them. Pinkus Zuckerman, the musicologist and historian Richard Taruskin had this to say about the Ninth Symphony. This symphony is among connoisseurs, preeminently the piece you love to hate, no less now than a century and a half ago. Why? Because it is at once incomprehensible and irresistible, and because it is at once awesome and naive. Is this piece irresistible and incomprehensible to you? Yes. <laughs> it's also <clears throat> intellectually incredibly challenging. It's the slow movement, tempo. And it goes into 12-8. Do you understand? <laughs> the people on the radio or wherever we are going to don't can't see that, but it's all one. Okay. That's why we are enamored by this music. It's not one movement or the other, it's the totality. And some people will talk about Chris as a life, but I think it's just him. Uh, he had this in his head way before. I think that the Third Symphony is the beginning of this destiny. I think the Fifth Symphony is definitely is already in the door. And the Ninth Symphony, he's saying goodbye. Um, and it's such a joy, that's why it's, I don't laugh, because it's a joy, it's an inner joy of this, of this monumental life that gave us this extraordinary art form, which without that, I really would be nothing. I don't know about you people, but I wouldn't be very good without Beethoven. Uh, Mozart, and all the great geniuses that came after him, there's no question that without them also, uh, we can't really survive without that. But the Michelangelo is one of a kind, and I think so is Beethoven. I would sleep a lot easier at night without the Beethoven 9. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, it sometimes wakes me up in a cold sweat. And because it is, you get one shot, I mean, really, if it's not good, that's what everyone will remember. Because the soloists literally get paid by the note, right? So it's <laughs> not a lot for us to sing. So what comes out had righteously better be... Do you know, Mish, that's, that's true the violin concerto. The beginning of the violin right? concerto, every time, and I've played it, I don't know how many times, my knees buckle. Mm. And I have a whole strategic plan of how to start that. I play a little bit in the tutti, and then I play letter B, and I play some of the chords, and not boing, 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 
And that's the same thing. Yeah. And but thankfully, in the case of the soprano solos in the Beethoven 9, the other soloists bear the brunt of, like, if I was the baritone, I'd be, like, uh, throwing <laughs> up in my mouth a little before, like, as soon as, like, it, I find that that is truly, truly uh, terrifying, what the baritone has to come out and do. And John Fanning <laughs> is my hero. It's <laughs> just so good. Misha, I come, came from an orchestra where an unnamed conductor who has since passed away, unfortunately, not because of what I'm about to tell you, but was f famous for bringing the hook, as we called it, and three performances in a row of Beethoven Ninth, the soprano who showed up for the first rehearsal was not on stage for the first concert. This was a conductor who was extremely particular in what he wanted. I don't think I need to, to, to ask you what the dangerous spot is in, for the soprano in the Ninth Symphony. Standing. Standing. <laughs> the hardest part, really. Isn't it really that tremendously difficult aria uh, and the, the chorale in, in B major and going no, up to the high B? You know, that's that what not people the want to think, but I, I think the hardest, because that's when you finally get a chance to blow. I mean, uh -huh. really, you're just kind of ascending, and yeah, it's exposed, but it's high and it's loud, and that's my thing. So, <laughs> so once we get there, I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know, I'm like, off to the races. It's staying in time, and everyone wants, like, Something, thank you. <laughs> He's laughing because he was like, move it along, Misha, in rehearsal. So I find that my heart is, because I'm not somebody who likes to sing fast. Like, I kind of, I like to wallow. I like the Brahms, the Mahler, the, you know, and all this joy. It's really out of character for me. So <laughs> we keep it moving. And I find the hardest thing is the, and then it's gone and I haven't even taken a breath and I, I find that very nerve-wracking I'd like to tell you and I'm I need to be really 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 breathing early I'm breathing three pages before that actually yeah, yeah. And, and preparing the support well ahead of when uh, the sound comes out yeah, yeah and humming with the choir <laughs> and doing whatever I can to stay warm and not fidget and Look happy. <laughs> Florida, Florida. <laughs> exactly. All you people are like, oh, she loves this piece so much. But in, in my head, I'm thinking, don't trip on your dress. For the love of God, Misha, just stand up. Don't trip on the dress and come in on time. It's bad. It's bad. Well, Misha, for someone who has such difficulty standing up to sing the piece, you're doing a lot of performances of it this year. Yeah, because I feel like any moment now, it's going to get easier. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that is the, the that is the joy and the crux of Beethoven is that as abusive as he is to singers, you always come back for more. You've got like this Stockholm syndrome that is <laughs> Beethoven is your captor and you don't want to leave him. So it, it is beautiful music to be a part of, but it's uh, challenging to rise to the occasion. Pincus, the word Freude is used, but there's some thought that, because of censorship at the time, that Schiller really meant to say Freihut, freedom. What do you think about that? Is it a cry for freedom? Is that the deeper meaning of the... Well, for sure, he wanted to leave. I mean, he was definitely having a horrible time. And so he was leaving. Um, I don't know, I wasn't there, I couldn't ask him. But I, I think that the idea that it's Freude is good enough for me. Um, mm. It could be freedom if you wanted to, but... It's not necessary. 
Of course, when Bernstein conducted the performance in Berlin yeah. after the fall of the Berlin Wall, he changed the lyric to, to freedom at that time. Well, that's obvious. Yeah. And Lenny was pretty good at that stuff. Yeah. yeah. But Kurt Mazur, on the night that the wall came down, I was in Hamburg, he did not. So, uh, that's interesting. Misha, can you talk about the differences in uh, performances with different quartets <coughs> in Beethoven 9 and different yeah. orchestras? How, how does the experience vary for you? Well, I think from the, ver from the onset, you have to consider when the conductor wants you to come on. Some conductors would like for you to sit for the entire symphony. <laughs> Some conductors want you to come in after the second movement so they can go straight into the third. My preference would be what you saw tonight, because you're not only able to stay warm as much as you possibly can, which means you're kind of singing backstage so that when you do actually have to stand and sing, it's not like a shock to you and to me. And so then you, there is, I always like to make the argue, <laughs> argument that there is a lovely kind of inherent pause between the third and the fourth movement, why not retune and let the soloists come out? But I tell you, I would never, ever try and force my opinion on, you know, like Franz Felser Mösch or Yahya Ling or Frubeck de Borgos or some of the like really old guard, you just do what you're told. And I, and I do. Well, of course, it is more typical for the soloist to come out before the third movement and they have to sit there and sit there, and it's terribly difficult to make a sound after all that time, and isn't it? And it's a slow movement, so it's hard to hum because it's so quiet. <laughs> and I'm trying to, you know, be as professional as I can, but every, like, I'm sucking on a lozenge or don't know when to reach for the water. It's, uh, it's high pressure, and it's funny how much tension you build in the body as you sit, because the body's not meant to actually be in a chair, so it's not really con conducive to good alignment in addition to all of that. But I do what I'm told, and I think that the different soloists, I mean, that's like um, you're as good as the music you're singing, and I think beyond that, you're as good as the people you're making music with. So sometimes you have a rocking quartet and you just try and, you know, tread water to keep up. And sometimes you don't and you taste blood after a while. <laughs> and there's not much you can do. I mean, I mean, that would be definitely a question for Pincus. I mean, because he could fire whoever is crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What no, about, no, I want to ask you, you what. Ever, have you ever done, have you ever pulled a, <laughs> pulled a soloist before a performance? No. And I begged him, and he let me stay. <laughs> I've pulled myself away, yes. <laughs> have, you, have you ever felt, felt just, justified in pulling a soloist and only because of good manners resisted? Uh, no, I, I have, well, not with orchestra, but I, what I recall is many years ago, I was trying to play a, a chamber music piece with a pianist. Uh, will be named Nameless, and I, I just couldn't play at all. I mean, he couldn't play with another instrument, never mind the violin. <clears throat> so that was very strange. But pianists sometimes are the, the complete instrument, so they don't necessarily work with someone. It's like harp players. I had also an experience with a harp. I, uh, I just, and the guitar, one time a guitar. 
they go, pluck. And I said, wait a minute, I need a beat, you know, pluck. And they go, what do you mean you need a beat? I said, pluck. And I went, whoa, whoa. You know, so it's a little bit funny. But how do you feel? I want to know from you as a member of the wind section, when that slow movement comes, uh, do you feel tired? Do you feel uh, that you are able to do it in a, in a complete run? I mean, what happens to you when you start that slow movement? Well, actually, I'm only 23 years old, and these... <laughs> These gray hairs are result in entirely of playing the slow movement of Beethoven 9. Ah, no, yes. uh, in answer to your question, uh, Beethoven 9, the slow movement, is without question the most taxing thing for, for our wind section. Uh, perhaps Schubert, great C major, if done with all the repeats, and perhaps the very end of Death and Transfiguration. Mm. Those are the moments where I, I tell you when I'm going about 85 bars with not more than a quarter rest, at that point I start to think maybe I should have become an accountant. <laughs> but let me ask you, from being in the orchestra, one of the things that I, that I find most interesting about uh, playing that third moment is the fact that the poor conductor has to conduct very slowly. And it's extremely difficult to conduct slowly. Yeah, play slowly, walk slowly, talk slowly, <laughs> conduct differently. Well, on the other hand, there are things that one can do within the bar that can hopefully help someone move into that next phrase. Um, and it's not a subdivision, it's a, it's a physical movement. It's like a Sicilian kind of, um, it's very Bach oriented, you know, the, the whole thing, the whole aspect of, of that particular. Uh, so you can, you can do that. It's difficult, difficult to actually do the metronome markings uh, in the last move, in the slow mode, are much faster than we actually do it today, um, which is interesting. Of course, we do have s numerous recordings in the last 20 years, uh, Roger Norrington among them, of uh, folks who have taken the metronome marking that uh, Beethoven used. There were arguments some years ago that Beethoven's metronome markings were not correct because his metronome was askew, but in fact his metronome was not askew, and these were actually <laughs> the, the tempos. Hmm. But it might have had something to do with he was hearing internally and not mm. externally. And if we read the, the um, record of the first performance yeah. of the symphony, and the rehearsals, he was conducting away and the orchestra had already finished and he did not realize that the music had finished. Yeah. It was a remarkable thing. Well, sometimes, some of the quartets, for example, um, that he writes such fast tempos, it's not playable. It's actually, I mean, I've tried to actually play, bam, ba -da -ba -da -dum, ba -da -ba -da -dum. it's 144 to the whole note, and that's really fast. I mean, I, I couldn't do it. Uh, and, and once, if a quartet tries to do it, it gets to be such shambles, you don't hear anything. So, you know, I think we have instruments today that can sustain the sound better than they were at that time, at his, in his time. Certainly the piano can sustain a lot more, it has a lot more variety. Um, the music itself can stand that kind of variety with the new instruments. So it really is a, you have to look at the beginning, you have to look at the end, and all of that has to match. I mean, it, they absolutely have to match. This is as integral to Beethoven as any piece is ever written. The tempo relationships are the most mm. important thing at the end in this piece when you're standing up there um, to, to, to start this piece, because it's the end as well. Yeah. It's amazing. 
integrated architecture. Absolutely. Yeah. Misha, can you talk a little bit about the preparation for the quartet? Unlike an opera, where you have to go into a city and start rehearsing several weeks beforehand. Oh I mean, yeah, you get like do with one downbeat, and they're like, okay, that consists. <laughs> the last. Do you, the first do, excuse me, interrupt you. Do, yeah. you. do you normally have a, a quartet rehearsal with yeah, piano? Yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends on how many performances of it you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, when I did the Beethoven 9, I did the premiere of Beethoven 9 in Accra, Ghana, with Daniel Berenboim and the orchestra of La Scala in the spring. And I went to Berlin to sing for Daniel. And um, he, you know, he... he say great yeah let's go to Ghana and then I said well wouldn't it be could I maybe come back and maybe work through because I thought well if I can get more time with Mr. Mr. B then I'll take it so then I actually went back to Berlin and we worked it was the first time that I actually had worked through it and we did you know two days of you know you can spend two days on those like 25 bars easy because Beethoven is just that intricate and it can be done I mean in my case it's it's really just a question of lightening it up because I have a tendency to I have a tendency to just want everything slower because like I said I don't sing fast so when I was working through it I was just trying to infuse a joy in the sound that is not necessarily inherent to what I would normal, what my normal inclination would be as a singer and as a musician, because I think that's what Beethoven often forces you to do, is to come outside of what your normal impetus or instinct might be, and to serve the music above all else, above all of my preconceived notions of what singing is, above all of my preconceived notions of what joy or orchestral singing or chamber music is, all of those things are kind of brought into question when, when you're singing Beethoven. And uh, I have now forgotten the question. <laughs> Don't ask let, it let again. Me, Don't let, ask it again. Let me ask you a secondary question. <laughs> in that final chorale, in the in the in the last moment, there is a treacherously difficult a cappella section for the four soloists, mm. and the difficulty, of course, is intonation. Yeah, how, with some quartets. Yeah. yeah. How, if you have a problematic quartet. How, describe to me the negotiation, the political negotiation process that goes on, goes into solving the problem. I ask you, you this question. You the viola player. I, <laughs> <laughs> I ask the question because I spend my life in that constant process of negotiating with my colleagues. Uh, intonation is something that is always in flux and is never absolute. So mm. what, describe to me a, a, a potential s solution to a, to a difficult problem there. I never correct my colleagues, ever. Unless we're in a situation where we are our own teachers, where we are creating the artistic impetus. I think that, that the artistic vision of the Beethoven 9 or of any symphonic work involving soloists falls, on the, falls to the conductor. And I was flesh. Uh, and I couldn't hear it, and Pink has told me, so I would expect him to tell me. I would 
be so remiss if and devastated if I heard a recording, mm -hmm. um, and I might go so far as to not, you know, maybe work with that person again because I don't think we have the same idea of what the hierarchy of that relationship is within a huge ensemble. Um, because I, I want to know, because I want to be the best. And you need that outside observation. Well, yeah. I mean, I would think, I mean, that's, a, again, a great question for Pink is because, I mean, he, I look to him. I mean, I look to who's on the podium to lead me. I will bring what I have to the table unapologetically, but I will be molded. I will be taught. So, um... Yeah, I, I just, I would never dream of correcting a mm -hmm. colleague. They have their own fish to fry. Yeah. yeah. Now, Pincus, um, you, on the other hand, are quite adept at correcting. <laughs> but I want to say, and I want the audience to know this, we just did a, a performance of, of the Septet a couple of days ago at St. Andrew's Church, and when we play chamber music with you, you are as open and expecting input and criticism from your colleagues as we are from you. It's, a, it's, a, it's quite a different dynamic. Nod your head. <laughs> if asked, I will lay you out. But you know what I mean? If, you ask, if somebody asks me, hmm, what do you think of that? I will be like, how much time do you have? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But unprompted, never. I am a lady. We have many people here tonight. Are there questions that you would like to pose to these lovely people? Yes, in the front row. Yes, sir. Oh, Lord. When you get tired of standing up and catching cold, why don't you try a stand-up comedian? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important in this career, especially to maintain a fierce sense of humor. <laughs> Someone else? There are no questions. No, there. In the back, please. Yes. What words of inspiration or advice do you have for university vocal students these days? May I just repeat the question? Is what words and advice do you have for university vocal students these days? Learn your languages. Take free language courses while you still can. Get your music to your pianist early. Realize that they have more notes to play than you do, and they will ultimately be responsible for making you look good. Uh, take extra courses. Audit cor courses you're not eligible to take. I audited Greta Krause's course and she died the year before I was able to take the course at, at the University of Toronto. Um, if you're good at competitions, enter competitions. If you're not, don't, because it's demoralizing. And if you can't enter competitions, don't teach, don't think that your summer, don't consider your summer time off ever when you're in university. There is a language course you could be taking, there is a summer program you could be going to, there is grants you could be applying for. That would be my advice. And the singing will work itself out if you do any and mostly all of those things. Misha, you said something so, uh, to, so close to what I really feel as well with my, our students. We asked them to go and get the music and give it to the pianists mm -hmm. uh, because the pianist does have a thousand notes and we only play one silly line. And, and that is really a discipline. And to hear someone 
like Misha said, as a singer. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> not, the, I'm, not, demeaning, I'm not demeaning any singers here uh, or in the world, but sometimes they are self-centered mm. because it is a difficult instrument in here. Uh, you can't tell what's going on in there. Uh, somebody has to tell you, but to hear what she just said is really extraordinary. And so I congratulate you. That's really mm. great advice. Because you know that the, the role of the collaborative pianist, I think, is extremely undervalued. I think more mm. and more people are realizing the importance of that art form. And I know because I am predominantly a recitalist and a concert musician and a chamber musician, that if I, if I'm not, if I wasn't aware of that, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be nearly as good because I know that my pianist is the driving force behind what sound I ultimately make. Did you read the Gerald Moore book? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I turned pages for him. Oh, stop. Because I, I heard him do Fischer Diskau. Fischer Diskau was, without him, was lost. And so I know exactly what you mean. I don't know how many of you experienced Gerald Moore and Fischer Diskau, Winterreiser, for example. Mm. Uh, he taught him the language, even though Fischer is German. Uh, and we actually did once uh, Beethoven Scottish songs uh, with him, and there was about Halloween, a song about Halloween, and he kept on saying Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> he had no idea what Halloween was or is, you know. Mm -hmm. So he said, Dieter, I think it's Halloween. He says, Yeah, but it's a W. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. A question in the front row. Oh, um, she's asking if my work allows me to get back to Fredericton because she watched me grow up in Fredericton. I am very loyal to the Maritimes. I'm actually going to the Maritimes tomorrow to surprise my sister who's just come back from Africa. Shh, don't tell. <laughs> and I will uh, I'll be there for the next two days. And I also will be touring with Symphony Nova Scotia in the spring. So, or Symphony New Brunswick. <laughs> They're the same players. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so I do try and uh, get there as much as I also The dress you saw tonight, it has to be said, was originally designed and made for me for my appearance this past summer in the Nova Scotia International Tattoo. Oh yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's Any reason I can be in Halifax for two weeks, people. Do you like the bagpipes? Oh my gosh, we had bagpipes at our wedding and I'm not even Scottish. <laughs> yeah, I love the bagpipes. I only got as far as the canter because I'm so crap at it, but I have always had a very, very deep, important place in my heart for the bagpipes and I may have known that the husband that I'm married to, I'm, that makes it sound like I've had more than one husband. <laughs> I've only had the one. And uh, he loves bagpipes too. So we were right tight because we are in love with the bagpipes. So to answer your question, yes. <laughs> Agony bags, I call them. Agony bags! Seriously, who got this guy here? Please. I have made a commitment for every seven years. I'm kidding, no. <laughs> um, the last time I was there was seven years ago, and uh, I love the tattoo. It's, uh, for those of you who don't know what the tattoo is, it's like they have it in Edinburgh, and it's like a celebration of all things like military bands and contortionists and gym wheels. <laughs> Not a lot of opera singing. So when... 
<laughs> and they, when I call them, because I call them to beg them to let me in the show. <laughs> and they like created an opera medley, opera medley with like bagpipes and brass. And I have to tell you, it's not often that you <laughs> get that kind of, and it's like in the huge stadium, it's like 6,000 people who leave having known just a little bit more about classical music. Yeah. Well, that's mixing it up. Right. I'm, trying, I'm getting it to the people. Getting it to the people. <laughs> I wanted to ask Pinkus. Can I ask Pinkus? Yeah, yeah. I'll get you in a minute. Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Sir. Tonight we had Ottawa choirs, and presumably you know how to get them to work together, and you're confident in your choice of them. What would you do when you're out of town in selecting choirs for a performance like this? I'd call Dwayne Wolf, <laughs> which is what I did. Um, and luckily for us, he has been here now for five years, and he's worked miracles with all the choirs, because we've had five tonight on stage, four or five. And I think it's tremendous that he dedicates his life to making people sing better. Um, and people that don't necessarily know how to sing, he actually helps them vocalize. Uh, and it's addiction and such a patient person. I just Extraordinary, extraordinary man. There's somebody in the back there. Yeah, in, in the back, please. How old were you when you decided you wanted to become a singer? Who was your inspiration? Pinkus. Um, <laughs> I started singing when I was about one year old. <laughs> and my father said, that's not good, play the fiddle. <laughs> I... <laughs> She's asking a serious question. It's really I'm coming. Not me, Sean. I'm coming to you. I apologize. <laughs> I started very young. Uh, uh, un, just, I started when I was six, which is very early. It's unusually early. It's not necessary. Um, so those of you out there thinking, oh, I'm so much older than six, it's not too late for you. Um, my father worked for the CBC. I grew up in a strong Christian home, and the tradition of my church was classical. So. I took piano voice and organ lessons from the music director of my home church in Fredericton and um, wanted to be a pianist. I think that's why I love my pianists so much because they are what I could never be. Um, and I think uh, that my inspirations... I really adore Ella Fitzgerald. I think that her... Um, technique it was is always is, it was always very solid. Um, she always had an evenness from the bottom to the top of her range that is I covet. Um, her diction was flawless. Her um, her loyalty and devotion and integrity to the composer. She knew that the music she was singing was enough, and she worked within the framework. Even though she could scat like nobody's business, she always worked within the framework of you know, Cole Porter or Gershwin or whatever she was singing. I respected that about her. I think that she was one of the few in her genre that, that did that. Um, and always in the center of the pitch. I'm so envious of that precision. She was really like an instrument. Um, so yeah, I think that she's really someone that a lot of classical, mu classical musicians should listen to. Now, 
in terms of the power, in terms of the girth, in terms of bringing the noise, it has to be Leontine for me. Somebody gave me a Leontine Price box set. Doreen Simmons, you know, the chain smoking swears like a sailor kind of pianist. She's at U of T, anyway. She brought me the, <laughs> she brought me the Leontine Price big red box set after a Verdi Requiem one day. I believe it was at the Armory in Kingston. One of my finer moments. And she shoved this into my chest and she said, darling, you need this. <laughs> and I was like, this lady's crazy, but I listened to it. And, you know, everything about that sound is perfect. Yeah, she was pretty good. Yeah. An idol for, for many of us. Pinkus, I want to change the subject just slightly here because there is something special coming up next week at the Arts Center. Stravinsky's L'Histoire de Solda, mm. a performance that's not been done here at, in, on our series in a number of years. Would you like to talk a little bit about what's happening with this, uh, with this work? Well, it's, uh, in, my, in my book, it's timeless. It's one of the great uh, pieces that combine theater and music. Uh, there are some other ones, but that definitely is the one that stands out practically for every composer that tries to write for the two idioms. Uh, it is really timeless. It talks about the devil, the devil as a creature that makes deals, and somehow the goodness of a book uh, brings back reality. And the music interspersed is interspersed within that. And there are three dances, of course, that are very famous. Um, we're doing a staged version. Right, we're doing it with Fitch. He was the person I worked with in New York on this piece a couple of years ago. Uh, it's all paper cuts. It's amazing what he's done. It's extraordinary stuff. It's a, the closest thing to the puppeteer's idea when Stravinsky first was inspired to write this when he heard puppeteers outside his window in Vevey, Switzerland. Um, and so that, that's the closest thing. And it's a child's kind of uh, approach to it, but of course very sophisticated at the same time. It's wonderful. Absolutely. And of course, uh, the, the soldier makes a deal with the devil. Do you feel you have to make a deal with the devil to play that extraordinarily difficult violin part? I make a deal part? with you guys, no. I hope <laughs> sit around me. Can, can we play in tempo, please? <laughs> anyway, that's coming up next week. Well, it's been wonderful to chat with both of you, and I know the audience has enjoyed a wonderful performance tonight, and especially uh, getting to know both of you up close. So thank you both for, for oh, coming tonight, and thank you all for thank coming you, to NACOCast. Thank you. forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard saying goodbye from Canada's National Arts Center.